Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. This is part 24 of our series in the book of Acts, and Pastor Jason today is looking at chapter 5 in verses 27 to 42 in a sermon that he's entitled, Joyfully Suffering for His Name. Let's take some time now and learn from the Word of God as Jason brings it. Here's Jason. Well, good morning, everyone. I am Pastor Jason, and welcome to Rancho Baptist Church. Thank you so much for coming this morning and worshiping with us as we endeavor together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to lift His name and exalt Him higher than any other. First off, I wanted to say a great big thank you to all of you that came out yesterday and and helped us. Seriously, praise the Lord for you guys. It, it, it was, I mean, of course, that was my first work day here with, with RBC. And it was incredible to see all the different projects going on. And, and thank you for, for all your hard work and the great fellowship that, that we had with one another as well. And praise the Lord that I don't believe anybody was too hurt. And um, I, I think everybody's probably feeling a little bit sore as I am. But thank you all for coming out. Um, if you are new to Rancho Baptist Church, and we don't know who you are, we would love to get to know you. And if you could fill out this little information card that came in your bulletin, just let us know a little bit about you, and and one of the pastors will get back with you. And if you have any questions or prayer requests, you can fill that out as well. And yes, all of you that attend RBC often, please, please, please put in your prayer requests so that we can pray for you as a body. And if it's... Yeah, something that's more confidential, just put a little asterisk in there that it is indeed confidential. You'll also notice that uh, some of us are are wearing these cool buttons. And you should have received this orange little pamphlet as you opened up your bulletin today. We are excited to say that we are now having signups for our community groups And we would love to have you sign up for them. So if you are willing and able today to sign up, you can fill this out and put them in the little pouches that we um, pass around during our offering time. Or you can take it individually outside and give it to someone that will be manning the hub after the service. Again, your, your top three preferred places to go as well as your time. And we will do our best to try to line it up so you get your number one preference But if everybody wants to go to the same spot, that might be a little difficult. And for those of you who might have a hard time getting around at night, say you don't want to, you can't drive at night or this or that, please go ahead and fill this out anyways, and we will figure out a way to come and pick you up and take you to the place that you would like to go for your community group. So don't let something like driving hinder you from coming and enjoying the time with us in community groups as we have been looking at the book of Acts, we see the need that we have to be involved in each other's lives. Much more so than just how we're involved in each other's lives here on Sundays. We want to see more and more people 
interacting with one another for God's glory and His grace as we spend time with one another. So if you have not been able to get connected with Rancho Baptist Church up to this point, I would encourage you, please sign up for one of these community groups and and see what the Lord can do, allowing us to get to know one another better, develop friendships, and just live life together as we endeavor to do just that, to be witnesses for the Lord. We are continuing our walk through the book of Acts, so please turn with me in the book of Acts to chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And today we will be looking at suffering for His name. Actually, we're going to be seeing a lot of significance in the name of of Jesus Christ and His name in particular. And And it reminded me of a story that I heard so many years ago that that has to do with Russia during the time before the Iron Curtain fell when the KGB were were running around trying to figure out where all these little churches were meeting. And there was a church meeting and, and one day they had some visitors come in and these visitors were holding guns. And the visitors came up front and they said, okay, anybody that is not willing to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, that is willing to die, you can go ahead and leave now. No questions asked. And a whole bunch of that body stood up and went out the back door. After they went out the back door, these two men that were holding guns went back to the back door, shut the back door, laid their guns down, came up and said, okay, now that we know who the ones are that are serious about the Lord, let's worship together. The risen Lord. Again, what we're going to see today is we're going to see different peoples respond differently to the name of Jesus Christ. So let's see exactly what happens as we take it from what we saw last week. Where the apostles were miraculously freed by an angel that the Lord sent to open the gates of the prison, and then commanded them to go to the temple and continue preaching. And as they continued preaching, we saw in the last verse last week that the captain, along with the officers, went back to that place where they were preaching in order to take them and bring them back into custody with the Sanhedrin and have them actually tried. But as they got there, they were fearful that the crowd might actually go south on them. And that the crowd might actually take up stones and stone the officers as well as the captain of the guard because perhaps maybe they were dealing with the apostles a little too harshly. And so instead, they they no doubt dealt with the apostles very graciously and gently in order not to cause a great big riot to start. So taking it from there, so now they are bringing them back. Verse 27, we're going to finish chapter 5 today, Lord willing. (laughs) When they had brought them, that's the captain and, and the guards, when they brought them, the apostles, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. 
He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would now teach us your word, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to make your word clear. We recognize that that we are in such a, a, a privileged state here in America. That for so many reasons, we, we, we can't relate with what we're about to see. As Acts chapter 5 ends up. But Lord, we know that there are many throughout the world that are being persecuted for their faith. We pray for those. For those believers right now that could be tortured and suffering because they are exalting you, because they are choosing to preach your name. Go before us now as we look at your precious word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So today what we are going to see is is really five different reactions to this name of Jesus Christ. And the way that people respond to this name and and, and what we're going to see first is we're going to see that some actually are are unable to speak his name. They they don't want to speak his name and and they'd rather pretend that the name of Jesus doesn't exist or at least they could shove it under the, the carpet and not even say the name. But the reality is the name of Jesus Christ does exist and they have to deal with it. Then we're going to see in contrast to those, we're going to see some who are declaring his name. And we'll see this in verses 29 to 32. And as a result of declaring his name, we will see that some are then angered by his name. And that we'll see in verse 33. And then in verses 34 to 39, we're going to see some that are compared to his name. 
and fall short. And finally, we're going to see those who are suffering for His name. Those who actually see Jesus as a name worth suffering for and worthy of suffering. But before we get to the those that suffer for His name, we, we first see those that are unable to speak His name. Really those that are unwilling to speak His name. Look at verses 27 and, and 28 with me. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So we see that now the council actually has the apostles before them. And that basically the captain of everyone, the head man in charge, the high priest, he brings two charges towards before the apostles. And, and the first charge is what the, that he says that you have, basically you have disobeyed the law that we told you, the command that we gave you not to keep teaching in this name. And you'll remember that back in chapter 4, they, they did the same thing. Instead of seeing the name of Jesus or actually hearing the name of Jesus come off of the lips of the Sanhedrin, you, you see them skirt it by saying, oh, in this name, not in the name of Jesus. They knew exactly who it is that they were talking about. But they didn't want to add any emphasis to the name of Jesus. So they actually try to downsize Jesus by referring to Him in this name. And, and we see that in this, that, that they say that things have actually escalated since what we saw in chapter 4, right? In, in chapter 4, they told them to stop speaking and teaching in this name. But now we see that, that their teaching has actually filled Jerusalem. We know that the early church was, was meeting in Solomon's portico, right? right? Right there at the temple. And that's where they were preaching and teaching. We know that they were doing something in houses, but it wasn't near to the extent of what we're seeing here. The, the, the same word that's used in Acts 2.2 of the room being filled with the sound like a rushing wind is the same word being used here to speak of the teaching of Jesus by the apostles filling all of Jerusalem. Meaning that no matter where you went, this is what people were talking about. This is what people were thinking about. And obviously this was upsetting to the Sanhedrin. And so we see that this, this first charge is disobedience, but that's not the only charge that they bring. The next charge that they bring is much more pointed, much more personal. And that second charge is that they are basically pinning the death of Jesus Christ on the Sanhedrin, and that is what they're charging them for. Hey, you're saying this is our fault. You're saying that we are the ones responsible for this man's death. That, that isn't what we want. This isn't something you should be doing like that. This is having terrible repercussions upon us. Our name is, is, is getting bludgeoned and Christ's name is being exalted. What is going on? We need to stop this. And yet we know from the Scriptures that if we were to turn back to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 24 in particular, we, we'd see Pilate during the the trial of Jesus, he says something very significant. Do you remember? He, 
He basically wants to wash his, his hands of the whole matter and not assume any responsibility for what is going on. And so what he says is, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. And who is he talking to? He's talking to these leaders. And what's really significant is that it doesn't end there. They actually respond to Pilate. And this is how they respond in verse 25. Let his blood be upon us and our children. So, so they're already culpable by their own admission. They've already said, yes, we will take this. We will have his blood upon us, not only upon us, but actually upon us and our children. See, these rulers, they didn't have to be made guilty by the apostles' teaching and by the preaching that was going on. They were already guilty. And everyone knew that. And yet with these claims that they are making, isn't it interesting what we don't see in this account? I mean, what, what just happened was they lost the apostles. They had no idea where they were. They, they knew that they were no longer in jail, but they didn't know where they'd gone to after that. And yet there's no discussion about this miraculous escape. Right? The, the two things they don't want to mention it are, are anything that would have to do to where they'd actually have to say Jesus' name out loud or anything that would attribute to actually Jesus doing something miraculous, which is indeed what Jesus had done. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to minimize all that God is doing and all that Christ is doing in His church. And they're doing this namely in this first section by not actually standing up and saying the name of Jesus and referring to Him as, oh, as His name. And yet when the apostles are given the opportunity, we don't see them shirk from, shirk down from this idea of actually proclaiming. What we see is we see them declaring His name. Look at verse 29. All they want to do is actually put Jesus on center stage. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So we see that Peter representing all the apostles with him, the, uh, the 11 other apostles, he stands up and, and, and he becomes the spokesman once again speaking on behalf of them. And, and in the Greek, there's this word again, day, which I said earlier is, is scattered throughout the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And it's this idea that something needed to happen. It was needful. It is necessary. That's exactly what Peter says. He says, it is necessary that we must obey God rather than men. And think about this. He, he could have given all sorts of reasons as to why they need to be released. Right? He, he could have defended himself. He could have begged for mercy. But instead, he, he goes with giving them a simple explanation of why they continued to do what they were doing. And this is the second time we've seen in Acts this depiction, really, of what a, a biblical worldview is for how we as believers are supposed to relate to the government. We're not supposed to look at the government as evil. The, the government is sanctioned by God. It is an, a rightful authority established by God. We, we see this in Romans Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. That God indeed has given us government as an authority over us to keep the peace in order to have social control and structure with, within our society. So it's a, it's a good thing. 
But there is a point where a govern, the government can go too far. When the government demands that we do not, what? Preach the gospel, which is exactly what's going on here. And if that is the case, where the government is demanding something that would then have us compromise the gospel, then we as believers must respectfully disobey that human authority just as the apostles are doing here and remain faithful to God. And in that case, we would say along with the apostles, we must obey God rather than men. But notice that Peter doesn't stop there. He's not interested in, 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 in just explaining the reason why they're doing what they're doing. You, you know what he's interested in? Again, he's interested in declaring his name. So, so look at verse 30 and how he starts off. He goes right back to the gospel. This would be, again, another mini sermonette given by Peter, just like he gave in, in chapter 4. But this one is a little bit more intensified. A little bit more personal. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. How does he start? He starts off by relating with these Sanhedrin, with the Sadducees, with the Pharisees, with this group of Jewish people. He lets them know, hey, the same Old Testament Yahweh that you worship is the same Yahweh that we worship, that we are serving. That this Yahweh of the Old Testament is the same God that sent Jesus. That He sent Jesus to what? To preach what He preached. To die how He died and He raised Him from the dead. That, that's where He's going to go. Trying to bring all this in and and then he adds in this, which is different from, from how we preached back in chapter 4. He's raising the ante up a little bit. Back in chapter 4, when he was talking about what they did to Jesus and how they were responsible for his death, he stated it in, in such a term as he was just saying, oh, you, you were responsible for his crucifixion. Now he actually goes in and he says, you were the ones who actually put him to death by hanging him on a cross. That this, this word put him to death is actually taking hold of someone forcibly with the idea of malicious intent. It's, it's to lay violent hands on someone. In essence, what he is saying is, oh, it's not just that you were responsible for his death as he communicated in chapter 4. Now he's actually communicating in chapter 5. Not only were you responsible for his death, but you were the very ones with your own hands who placed Jesus upon that cross. And before he didn't talk about the cross, now he, he goes in and he, and he clearly depicts exactly how Jesus died. Why is this significant? This is significant because they put him on a cross, on a tree. And in both the mind of the Romans and in the mind of the Jewish people, that is a shameful, terrible way to die. Do, do you recognize that they could have stoned him? That they had the right to stone him? Just as they have the right right now to stone the apostles. That was within their power. But they chose not to do that. They chose actually to go with a more shameful death. No doubt because they understood even the significance of what the Old Testament talked about when it came to crucifixion. Deuteronomy 21.23 says it like this. 
A person hanged from a tree is cursed by God. That was their intent. That was their desire. They didn't just want to stone him. They actually wanted to curse him. They actually wanted to shame him. Make a public spectacle of him. And that's why they went after Jesus the way that they did. And yet for all of their malice and in their willful, terrible intent of Christ trying to shame him, executing him the way that they executed him, God had a, a completely different plan. Look at verses 31 to 32 as Peter says it this way. Speaking of Jesus, He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand. Not something shameful. He exalted Him to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. What was God's perspective, God's plan? God's plan was to use His death to exalt Christ, to offer salvation. Their plan was to bring Him shame. God's plan was to bring glory and honor to Him. Even in this, do you see God's grace? God's grace being poured out to the Sanhedrin. This is now round two, right? And instead of Peter saying, okay, I'm done. I've already shared this with you. I'm not going to say anything. Instead, he says, no, that this Jesus, he is the one who offers these two wonderful gifts, the gifts of repentance and the gift of forgiveness. And it is offered to you today, you in the Sanhedrin. You can turn and repent now. That's what he's offering them. And he says these two depictions of who Christ is. He says that first he's at the right hand, speaking of this position of authority that Christ was placed into as a prince. That that means a a person in a preeminent position. It can be considered a pioneer or the first leader of a group. And that's exactly who Jesus is. He's the first leader, the first fruits. He's the one that has gone before us. He is the first one to conquer death. And that is why we can have the hope that we too will conquer death because of what Christ accomplished. So in that essence, He is the Prince, but He is also the Savior. The One who has come to save those that are in need. And is that not all of us? By granting us repentance and forgiveness. Repentance, the the idea of turning away from something to something else. And in particular, when we're talking about the Word and and we're talking about... Scripture and Jesus Christ we're talking about changing one's way of life as the result of a complete change of your thought and your attitude in regard to sin on the one hand and righteousness on the other. To recognize, yes, I am a sinner. There's no way I can earn salvation. I'm going to accept the free gift of God by having faith in Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished. And have we not seen this repentance and forgiveness preached already in the book of Acts? Oh, we've seen it several times. We we saw it first in in, in Peter's first sermon in Acts 2.38, where he said it like this, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In essence, what what Peter is doing here is he's giving them the gospel. Did you catch that? This is the gospel. First, he explains man's condition. That man is guilty. That mankind, like the Sanhedrin, who were guilty of putting Jesus to death, mankind is guilty of sin. 
All mankind are guilty of sin. Each of us are guilty before God and we are deserving of death. But then he also gives us God's solution to that sin problem of man. And that is the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. As specifically, he mentions Jesus dying upon the tree, dying upon the cross. Not for his sins, because he was perfect. But for the sins of those who would trust in him. And then we also see reference to the resurrection and his ascension. That God the Father accepted Jesus' atonement, his death on the cross as the punishment, the payment for sin. And then the last thing that we see is man's responsibility, right? That, that man is to respond to the gospel in repentance. And as such, he will receive forgiveness. That, that is what Peter is, is preaching to these men once again. And then he gives us these two little extra perspectives on a believer. Which are encouraging and challenging. <laughs> As how do we live this Christian life? You can only live this Christian life with the Holy Spirit's help. As he says in, in, in verse 32, that they are not only witnesses, but the Holy Spirit is witness. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in those whom have trusted in Christ. The Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. You can't obey the Lord without having the Holy Spirit residing in you and being saved. So we see these, these two perspectives on a believer. One, that they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And two, they are to walk in obedience before the Lord. But no doubt, as Peter is mentioning these things, as he is tying in the God of the Old Testament, our God, as he's no doubt relating to the Sanhedrin, to these Jewish leaders, and, and that as he's relating Jesus Christ with God and talking about him being at the right hand of the Father and then talking about the Holy Spirit coming and bearing witness to Jesus Christ, it has to elicit some sort of response. And either that response is going to be good or it's not going to be good. And in this case, the response is not good at all. As we see those that are presented with the name, His name, the name of Jesus Christ, and His precious good news that He came to die for sinners, they become angry. Look at verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. So this then is their response. After hearing all of that, again, this is the second time, no doubt they already had in the backs of their mind this miraculous escape that happened. All these things that have happened, you would think at this point one or two of them might have actually repented and softened, but no, instead they actually go the other direction. They're cut to the quick. This is from a, a compound word, meaning it's made up of two words. On the one hand, it means to cut in two, and on the other hand, it means all the way through. So it's literally as if what he is saying in the preaching of the name of Jesus Christ affected them so much that it cut them right down the middle, right to their heart. And infuriated them, enraged them, made them furious to such an extent that they wanted to kill them. And again, could they? They most certainly could have stoned them right there and then. 
But again, that wasn't even God's plan when it came to Jesus. Why didn't he die by stoning? Because of the prophetic word seen in such passages in the Old Testament as Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. He had to die on a cross. He had to spill his blood for the lost. And yet the apostles very much could have died by stoning right there and then. And in fact, no doubt the apostles at this point are thinking it's not looking good. We are a step away. We're on a precipice. We're on a great big cliff getting ready to be pushed over. In fact, I'm sure it's going to happen any moment now. We're dead. But instead, look at how God's grace intervenes. And He intervenes in a most unexpected manner by a, a, a most unexpected man. Look at verses 34 to 37. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So, so we see that the Lord uses this, this Pharisee named Gamaliel to quiet the rage of the Sadducees and to, and to kind of throttle down their desire for murder. He takes them out of the mix so they're not even looking at them anymore. That's helpful. And then he goes back into history and and pulls out these two what wannabe messiahs. These two wannabe saviors that no doubt there were lots of them that, that came up in the history of Israel. People claiming to be the Messiah, just like Jesus. So what's he doing? He's doing a comparison. Even if I forgot to get to this point, he's still doing a comparison. <laughs> He's comparing these two men with the name of Jesus Christ. Say, man, are they the same? Are they similar? Whoa. We have to recognize too what, is, what the significance is that he is a Pharisee. Notice it doesn't say he's a Sadducee because the Sadducees, as we've seen in the book of Acts, they're the ones that are vehemently opposed to the apostles. They're the ones that were in power. Even though they're the lower number, the Sadducees were the ones that were in charge of the temple. And so the apostles are on their home playing ground and they're getting more and more upset over all the commotion that's happening because of them. The Pharisees, on the other hand, really, if you, if you look at the Gospels, they're the ones that were upset with Jesus. They're known as the separated ones. They're the ones who, who are all about an outward observance to the law. And they added all sorts of extra ad- additional traditions They had an oral tradition and all sorts of other things that they added on to the law. Telling people this is what holiness looks like. Not only do you do the law, but you do all this other stuff too. And what was Jesus' response? Jesus openly rebuked them. And as a result, they openly hated Jesus. And they tried right right from the start to start thinking about how they were going to do Jesus in. And yet now we see this man, Gamaliel, who make you, you have to understand who this man is. He's the most famous Pharisee and teacher during this whole time. 
everybody knew who Gamaliel is, what his school was, how he was the main teacher of his school. And so no doubt when Gamaliel stands and speaks, everybody stops to listen. And he can command them to leave because he is one of the Sanhedrin. He's a very, very powerful man. And and we'll see in Acts 22 that he actually is the teacher of the Apostle Paul before he became the Apostle Paul when he was Saul. And yet it seems like the the Pharisees are actually maybe trying to, to use this situation as some leverage. As perhaps maybe Gamaliel and all the Pharisees are thinking, well, maybe these guys will serve us in the future. Maybe this will help us. They actually believe in the same things that we believe. And even though we don't believe in this, this Jesus man as the Messiah, they, they can help us to combat the Sadducees a little bit. Maybe that was some of the perspective. But in either case, what does he do? He presents them with two would-be Messiahs. The first one's Thutis. And he rises up and about 400 men rise with him. And it looks like it could be a great big thing, but instead he's killed and all of his followers disperse. So indeed, he's not the Messiah. And then he talks about another man, Judas of Galilee. And perhaps he's the Messiah. No, he's a man who refused to give tribute to Caesar. And he, and he taught all the, the Israelites that, that they were not to give tribute to pagan kings. And as a result, his revolt was crushed by Rome and came into nothing. So what is Gamaliel going to do now? Well, he's going to use this as leverage in order to give them what he and what I think many people would consider as wise counsel. Look at what he says in 38 to 39. And I don't believe this counsel is wise at all. So in the present case, I say to you, this is Gamaliel speaking to all the Sanhedrin before him, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now, I didn't say I don't believe this is helpful (laughs) for the apostles at this point. Very helpful. Keeps them from being killed and stoned right there and then. But as far as wise advice, is this wise advice? I, I would say no. Why? Because his whole counsel is wait and see. Let's see how this all works out. Let's see if this really is of God or not of God. And what's the criteria for whether or not something is of God? Whether or not it succeeds. And this idea that whatever succeeds has God's blessing or God's approval is false. There are many things that succeed that do not have God's approval or His blessing. Right? There are many cults that have how many things Millions of people following them that are not sanctioned by God, that are not blessed by God. And yet, from a worldly perspective, you'd look at it and you would say, oh, that is very much succeeding. So so you can't just say, oh, because this or that, then God is behind this. His his logic is, is weak. And what he is doing, I believe, is he's, he's not going far enough. If he really wanted to do the situation justice, Gamaliel's advice should have gone something more like this. Okay, really what he should have said, it's not good for us to ride this fence. And I don't know if they would have said that in 
in Hebrew. If this really is something of God, then let us look into their claims more fully. Let, let's, let's investigate their claims that Jesus did indeed raise from the dead. Let's investigate their claims that He is the Messiah. We've done this before. We've looked at other Messiahs. I just quoted you two of them. Let's do the same thing with Jesus and with His followers. And perhaps when we look into the claims of, of Jesus and His resurrection we'll find them to be true. And if that is the case, then let's turn and follow Him. Of course, that isn't what Gamaliel believes and that isn't what Gamaliel says. I believe what Gamaliel's thinking is that He, Jesus Christ, is just like these other two fake messiahs. These two wannabe messiahs. And so he's thinking, oh, this is going to come to nothing. And no doubt all of the Sanhedrin with him are thinking the same thing. And that's why, look at verse 40. That's why they take his advice. Or at least they partially take his advice. They took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So we see that, yes, they they, they took the advice... To a certain extent. <laughs> but Gamaliel had told them not, not to leave them alone. To stay away from these men. But they don't leave them alone. What do they do? They, they flog them. That, that means to strike someone repeatedly. To flay them. To, it, it can be translated to skin them. No doubt we're, we're talking about the, the whipping that, that would go on during this time. Where somebody would receive 39, 40 lashes minus one, Right? Get them as close as we can to actually killing them, but not killing them. This is what the apostles have happened to them. So instead of leaving them alone, they they actually take it a couple steps further than Gamaliel said for them to do. Why is that? Because they hated them. Because they hated the name of Jesus Christ. And they thought of Jesus Christ as no different than the two men that Gamaliel talks about. And you would think at this point that the apostles would be somewhat discouraged, right? Somewhat upset, somewhat downcast. The last thing you would think that they would do is, was to actually go home and start preaching and teaching. Or even, even crazier, to actually rejoice that they had suffered like that. But that is exactly what we see. Why? Because of their perspective. Because they recognized that God was in control of all these things and that Jesus was continuing to build His church and He was using them. So look at verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, talking about the apostles leaving the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Their response is truly inspiring and and challenging, is it not? To think that they actually were tortured like that and then their perspective upon leaving is to rejoice. I don't believe they they were rejoicing in the pain that their backs went through. Of course they wouldn't be rejoicing in the the physical pain and hardship. What, What were they rejoicing in then? They were rejoicing in the fact that they could be associated with Jesus. 
that they could be understood in light of everything that's going on. These belong to Jesus. And in the same way that Jesus suffered, his we are able to suffer. Not that it's saying that by any stretch of the imagination that they were somehow paying for their own sins. No, nothing like that. Jesus paid for their sins in full. But this is the idea that, that they are rejoicing in the fact that they are given the opportunity to associate with their risen Lord and Savior and to suffer for no other purpose but because of His name. Because He was the one that they were preaching about and His name brought about the suffering upon them. And no doubt that that this focus on, on the eternal perspective on Jesus Christ and what He had commanded them to do and recognizing up to this point all that God had done to keep them safe, even in the midst of all that was going on to miraculously release them from jail and all these things, as we saw earlier, built their confidence in the Lord, right? And they knew, okay, this isn't the end. (laughs) The Lord still has more for us to do. And so then what do we see in, in verse 42? And I'll close with this. We see that, and every day in the temple and from house to house. Isn't that interesting? That they kept meeting from house to house as well. It wasn't just in the temple where they were preaching, but they were spending time in house to house, no doubt encouraging one another. That's why fellowship is so important. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. First they were joyful in suffering, and now we see they're unashamedly obedient. Willing to to risk it all in order to preach about Christ because they knew that He was the only one that offered salvation. That He indeed is the door to salvation. And even in this, as we look at these verses, we see three different responses to the Gospel. Do we not? In, in, In verse 33, you see the response of hatred. The response of anger. And then with Gamaliel, we, we, we see a different response, a, a response of in, indecision, indecision and intolerance. Kind of walking the fence. That, that would be akin to somebody who says, well, I know that, that I should trust in Jesus, but I kind of like my life now, the way that I live it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait till I'm really sick and on my deathbed. And at that point, all of a sudden, I'm going to get serious about the Lord. And at the last minute, I'm going to squeak into eternity on the right side. Really? And what happens if after you live this life, the way you want to live your life, you get to your deathbed and you say, no, I don't want that at all. Or what happens if you actually leave and next week you die? Today is the day for salvation. Don't be like Gamaliel riding the fence. Be like the apostles, which is the third example, who accept by faith and repentance the gospel of Jesus Christ and their lives are forever changed. Not that their lives are forever easy, but their lives are forever changed. So let me close with some things to consider, some points to ponder. Consider consider the joyful response of the apostles when they were beaten and sent away by the Sanhedrin, what would give the apostles such a perspective? Why would they consider suffering for Christ as something worthy to endure? Have you ever had the attitude of, 
rejoicing in your suffering. Why or why not? Have you ever known anyone that had this attitude? That actually looked at their suffering through the eyes of of joy because they recognized that God was still in control. Or number two, consider, consider Gamaliel. He was a fence sitter who cautioned the leaders that they should wait and see if Jesus and the apostles were really from God. But what greater testimony did he need beyond Jesus' resurrection and and the miracles that the apostles were doing? Why does he adopt the wait and see attitude? And do you see the same attitude in your life? That perhaps God is challenging you to not wait and see, but to take a step forward in faith and trust him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your for your oh-so-powerful word. We thank you for the testimony of the early church, for the challenge that they are to us, Lord. And we pray that you would expand our understanding of who you are, how great you are, that we might walk in obedience before you, trusting you with whatever comes our way, whether it's suffering or your blessing upon us. Go before us now, in Jesus' precious name. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.